Hello, I'm Joan. I'm a Canadian family physician who also works as a restorative medical educator, facilitator, and coach. I create spaces that rehumanize the work of healthcare. I'm creating this podcast to remind myself, as well as anyone else working in a helping profession, that when you are working and caring for your human patients, you are the other human in the room. Hey there, healthcare humans. Just at the start of this episode, I did want to name that um, I'm talking about uh, trauma in this episode, and I share a story from my past that um, is uh, could be uh, activating or triggering to people. It, 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 the content of it is um, an experience in medical school, which um, in which a preceptor um, was unkind uh, and unsupportive, and I felt um, pressured into a situation in which a patient um, experienced harm. And so I, I share that story. I try not to share too many details, but if you find it at all activating because it reminds you of your own stories, I, I think I mentioned blood at one point. And so if that's activating to you, I just want to like let you know and invite you um, to take care of yourself, resource it yourself. Feel free to pause the podcast, whatever you need. Um, and yeah, if this one's not for you because um, talking about trauma and talking about sort of medical education trauma is something that's too sensitive for you. You might want to give this one a skip. And um, yeah, hopefully you do find it helpful um, at the pace in which you can take it in. Okay. Hello there, healthcare humans. Thank you so much for coming back for another episode of The Other Human in the Room. Okay, so today's episode is something that is very near and dear to my heart. And um it's about people pleasing. Um, I've talked about people pleasing in a lot of different ways on different episodes in the past, probably most explicitly on the episode that I recorded about lying to patients. Um, and I've recently been um, doing some more sort of education and learning myself um, about a concept related to people pleasing that's really unlocked like kind of a different level of understanding for myself about it. And so I thought, well, this is what I always do when I'm learning more. I just want to share it with all of you because I think this is then how we heal together. So um, I wanted to first tell you a story of um, a time where my uh, default reaction of people pleasing um, caused a patient harm. Um, I guess right before I tell the story, I'll give you my definition of people pleasing. Um, I'm sure there's 50 billion. When I'm talking about people pleasing, I'm talking about the phenomenon of wanting to do what other people want, even when I don't want it. So someone asks me, hey, can you drive me to the airport? If my internal genuine answer is no, but I say yes, um, I, that would be an act of people pleasing to me. Um, and it's because I'm doing it to keep the other person pleased. I want people to be happy with me. So you may be a people pleaser if you worry a lot about making people mad, if you have trouble saying no, if you have trouble setting boundaries, like sort of the concept of people pleasing in, embodies all of that. Okay. And so in um, my case, this is an example from medical school. Um, I was actually on my family medicine rotation and um, I was really excited for it. Uh, so it was like 
I'm in medical school, so this is part of my clerkship or internship, you know, so I'm finally doing clinical placements. And I had already known I wanted to to practice family medicine. And so I I was excited after several, you know, hospital-based rotations to finally be doing what I thought was going to be, you know, my passion and something that was really good. And so um, I I think this backstory is relevant, so I'm going to tell it all. so I, sh- I show up at this placement that's like the six week, I think, long placement. And I have like an older male preceptor. I, I do think that's relevant. Um, and actually he he matched one of the two races that I have. Um, this is not really about him. So anyway, just to say um, he reminded me of other male uh, familial uh, authoritative resources <laughs> or people in my life. Um, and um, the very first day, uh, he, um, and like the very first patient I went to see of his, um, I spent almost like 45 minutes in the room with these two patients. And when I came out to present, he was like deeply disappointed about what I hadn't done. He used a lot of sort of shaming language of like, wow, what were you even doing in the room with that patient? What have you been doing all this time? Did you even do this? Did you even do that? Like very shaming um, sort of experience. Um, and I then had to do this like readjustment of like, oh, okay, like, um, so, and I did readjust in, in the clinical setting and tried and figured out what it is that he wanted me to do and sort of adjusted to the new setting. So I already had this sense that I was like not on his good side and being a chronic people pleaser, I, that was, that already had me like really stressed and really fretting about it. Um, there were also like features of, um, how this preceptor had his pr- practice set up that I was like pretty unhappy with. Um, I'd actually requested if there was a way I could shift before we, we even started together because um, I realized he did surgical assists and I had just come off of a really unpleasant surgery rotation. And I honestly, my body and my brain were like, I don't want to ever go back in an OR and I'm going back again. Like this is not what I was hoping for. And I'd requested a switch and they said it couldn't. And so then um, the first uh, time that we were in the OR together, so he was doing a surgical assist day. So I'm already in this position where um, I'm however many months into my clerkship, pretty burnt out, um, used to honestly people pleasing like all the different preceptors and then now feeling like this particular preceptor who is the supervisor for the rotation that matters to me the most because I want to go into family medicine already thinks I'm an idiot, honestly. Like, I don't think he used the word idiot, but the way he treated me and how he expressed to me was like, yikes. Like he kept bringing up the, you know, the medical student who was here before you like totally was so efficient and would like get through a 15 minute visit and do everything I wanted them to do. Like he just kept bringing her up. (sighs) And so, um, now I'm in an OR with him and, you know, um, it's for open heart surgery. And he asks, um, do you want to put a catheter in? And I say yes, because like anything to please. And um, I have never put in a catheter before. And it's been a while since I've say like reviewed sort of the theory of how you do it. I actually haven't had any opportunities to say even practice on a model of for a catheter. So I know the general idea of catheters, but I actually am not honestly at this moment in the story familiar with like all the mechanics of it. And, but I say yes, cause I need to do anything to help him, you know, impress him. And it's him and some other guy I don't know. And it's like preparing for this big surgery. And so then he's like, okay, here, here, he shows me a little bit of what to do. And then he just asked me like, do you think it's all the way in? 
because I'm putting it in, it's a male patient or, or a patient with the prostate and also identified as male. And um, I say, yes, um, I have no idea. It felt like it went in some amount. Of note, no urine is coming out of the catheter. Could have been useful. Anyway, um, so I say, yes, question mark. And then he's like, okay, so then go ahead and inflate the balloon. If you know about catheters, there's like a balloon that inflates that keeps the catheter in there. I inflate the balloon. A whole bunch of blood comes out of this catheter, guys, because I have basically terped this guy. I don't know if that's the correct term, but like I have blown up a balloon in this guy's prostate. Um, and so then everyone's like, oh my gosh, what's happened? Oh dear. Tries, you know, pulls it out. Can't get another catheter in lots of blood. Um, and, uh, urologist has to come and, you know, use the special camera. Now this open heart surgery is delayed. Um, the urologist, a very grumpy old guy comes up to me afterwards and says, this guy may never be without a catheter again. I am just like totally shut down. Um, I, um, like, like horrified, just like, I've just left, I've left my body though, to be honest, I've like left my body. I'm like very dissociated. The like socially awkward, but at least a little bit kind, um, open heart surgeon. Um, she, the only female in the room besides me comes up and says like, it's okay. This happens to everybody or something. I forget like, this is hard. Um, and then like, I still then stand there for the rest of this procedure and then the only debrief I get after is a couple days later, the preceptor saying, you know, now that I think about, what did he even say? It was such a non thing. I actually have sort of blocked out what he said. He's just like, I guess I, I could have uh, taught you a little bit more or made sure you really knew how to do a catheter be- uh, before I asked you to put it in. Something like that. I think that's what he said. And then we just went on with our rotation. And I just like held that experience in my body to this day. So... What was happening there, right? Like, I judged myself really harshly um, for not, like, that story could have gone very differently at many points if I said, you know, I have actually never done a catheter before. Can you please review the steps with me? And when I didn't know if it was all the way in, because I, I did not have an understanding of how that would feel, I'd never done it before, I could have said, I don't know if it's all the way in. Can you check for me? But I didn't want to be perceived as like weak or insecure because I, I mean, this guy already thought I was a big mess, right? So I, I just overrode any sense of any like say learning needs I had because I was, it was more important to please him. It was more important for, to impress him. Obviously, in this particular case, that particular protective mechanism didn't work so well. I don't believe I impressed him by blowing up this guy's prostate. And more importantly, like, I mean, just to say how serious people pleasing can be, like, I was then, I participated in causing, you know, a significant complication and harm to a patient. I actually have no idea what happened to the patient. No one ever, like, came to me. I have no, I hope that guy can pee okay. I have no idea. Like, um... It's actually also very fascinating. Like, basically, I committed a somewhat significant medical error. No debriefing. Like, there was so much about that situation, which, um, oh, shoot, maybe I should have put a trigger warning at the beginning of this. I might, like, at 
after I record it, go back and just put a little mini trigger warning because I just think this is not unfamiliar. Maybe you did not have this exact situation happen to you, but just speaking to enough people, I know so many of us felt like it wasn't actually important to even talk about how much we didn't know and ask for, you know, teaching. We just felt like we had to please and please. And it was our fault. It was our deficit. It was our wrong if we didn't know already. Like, how did I not know how to put in a catheter that by that point in the medical school? I didn't. Any, you know, it, it, whether I should have or shouldn't have, I didn't. And that gap resulted, um, that gap plus my people-pleasing response and honestly also a bunch of unaware non-trauma informed preceptors like what a perfect storm for this harm to happen to this patient to me and to me in the process the the physical harm of course happened to the patient and being serious and it really did a number on me as well it was terrifying to me it did not teach me that i needed to be more authentic it taught me that i was just bad i was like not a good learner. I was just sort of useless. And um, honestly, I don't even, I think I maybe did one other catheter. Like I just was like, I'm going to avoid this whole thing. Like it didn't make me more interested in learning about catheters. Let's put it that way. Right. So that's my story. Um, And uh, now I want to talk about how, I mean, I've already, as I've shared it, like that had been the level of like understanding I had come to of like, okay, it wasn't that I was a bad person. It was that I had this people pleasing response. And that was like, you know, something that I'd learned would keep me kind of safe over time. Um, And then recently, I also have been learning more about a specific trauma response that I think is, um, if not actually the same as people pleasing, at least for me, resonated on like a deeper level of a lot of what was happening in that room. And then a lot of rooms that I've been in where afterwards I kind of thought of it as people pleasing, which is the trauma response of fawning. Fawning, F-A-W-N, fawn, like like you're fawning, like it's you it's sort of old timey like we don't necessarily use that term a lot but like you know what i picture is like some royalty some king and people are like fawning all over him like just like you know like bowing at his feet fawning like to please and praise and like worship someone right so um i have been recently going through this email course from this person that I found on social media who really explains a lot of concepts to do with say embodiment and trauma in ways that really help me that are really like clear to me so a lot of the content I got from this podcast is um, inspired from going through this course with him his name is Luis Mojica I believe I'm pronouncing that right on Instagram and I think the name of his company is Holistic Life Navigation which is very fun and um he and so like a lot of what i'm going to say is is what i learned from him and then kind of like what i processed because of what i learned from him um and so that's what i want to share with you is beyond um thinking of it as people pleasing what if we really view a lot of the ways that we do this as fawning and um explaining some of the mechanisms of that has been very helpful for me So just taking a step back to review the various trauma responses. Um, So trauma responses are, I guess, like really what I mean is the, like our autonomic nervous system, our reactive nervous system, you know, 
in particular, our sympathetic nervous system. So, so the one that's filled with adrenaline if there's a threat in the room. So the part of our nervous system that's in charge of protecting us if we are about to die. That's what I'm talking about, right? Um, pumps us full of adrenaline, like all the different things that happen. And then depending on the situation and also depending on our life experience and all the situations of threat we've had before this, our body will sort of choose what its default response will be in this situation, right? So, um, you know, so I always picture like a picture a lion's um, like coming for you, right? The, if a lion's coming for you, gonna eat ya, these are the responses that your your body and your nervous system will quickly like go rifle through and decide which one it's going to do. It is not your conscious brain. It is this unconscious reflex. And that's that's actually one of the critical things. It's, it's this unconscious reflex. OK, so the options that it has uh, and the categories are always shifting because we're using, you know, uh, little constructs called words to label different things that our bodies do. But the ones that I find useful to know are fight. So, you know, say you are bigger than the lion, you know, and it's coming at you, then perhaps you will, your autonomic nervous system is like, oh, you can take this, this threat to you. So we're going to fight, right? And so then you will like try to fight the lion. Um, another common one is flight. So say you gauge, okay, if I try and fight this lion, I'm definitely going to lose, but I think I'm faster than this lion. Let's get out of here. And so then you run freeze so situations where you're you're pretty positive if you try and fight the lion not going to work out well for you you don't think you're faster so you freeze like in place in hopes that it will um that the lion will like maybe not notice you right maybe if especially say you're in a herd with others maybe someone else will get caught instead of you so you just freeze in place right and then um fawn which i'll get to in more detail later but basically fawning is the notion of like um trying to please or or appear attractive to the person to the lion attractive in a way that is not like delicious but attractive like somehow helpful to the lion you know um and then the last one is collapse and collapse is one where um basically your body is like well i am definitely going to be eaten so I'm just going to lay, lay down and play dead. So then, and maybe this will get me out of it, but more, mostly it's just like, I am definitely going to get eaten. So I'm just going to like pass out. And like, these are real responses that then, you know, so if people have had past really painful, threatening experiences, what happens when we call them trauma responses is when like you're having what appears to be kind of a neutral day where in no way is your bodily self at harm, but there's something that reminds you or, or a similar experience starts to happen to you and your body has this memory of what happened before. And so it, it acts in the same way. So if there's times where you're like, wow, like why did my brain just go totally blank? And I like couldn't think of anything to say. One possibility is that that's because you have a default trauma response of freezing in those sorts of situations. Like maybe, right? Or like, oh, why am I always so combative with people? Maybe one of the possibilities is if you have more of a fight response, right? So um, I'm not going to talk about all those different responses. In fact, I'm hoping to have someone on soon who can talk more about them. But I wanted to talk about the fawning one because that's like what's been really helpful for me recently, right? So, so putting it in this lineup with the others, the... The important thing to know is that fawning 
is a super important, like evolutionarily driven, powerful reflex of our autonomic nervous system. It is there to keep us alive. It is there for when we're under bodily harm. It is, um, so like the example that Luis used in his course is like, well, say you, there was a lion in front of you. Like the response that would be kind of fawning would be like, nice kitty, hey kitty. I'm okay. I'm not a threat. Hey, let's be buds. Want to be my friend? Like, you know, something like that. Like in those sorts of situations, you aren't like, wow, what a weak will doormat of a person for being pleasing to the lion. You're like, good job. Do anything. Maybe this will work. Right. Like, and so that's like a way to think of fawning because like a lot of us have this double shame thing where we go through an experience, say like I went through where I blew up the guy's prostate and we don't even know what happened to us in the situation because it is automatic. It's just happened, right? And you didn't, I didn't consciously say, I'm planning to lie to this preceptor about how much I know. I am planning, it, it just was absolutely automatic. I felt like I was barely there for it to be truthful. And that's how I now see, ha, I think this is sort of trauma response stuff that I just sort of, my body took over and did what it needed me to do to get out of that situation alive is sort of the thought of what my body was doing, you know? And so there's a lot of unshaming when you know it is an automatic response. It is unconscious. It's not a sign of like weakness. It's actually a sign of the power of your autonomic nervous system. And we want that survival strategy to stick around for the times when the lions are there. And, you know, maybe it is that sadly, at least that the way that the relationship was set up with this preceptor, maybe if I'd been more authentic, I don't know if I would have passed my rotation. I hope so good grief I wasn't like horrendous like but you don't know so like at least at that time that's like what my body thought I had to do to get through it you know and so there's the part of it that's just automatic right I think it's also really important to name that this response in us is also deeply exploited by our culture um, and by often our family structures or like different parts of us, like at different places we've been, different experiences we've had, right? It's actually becomes cultural. So like we have, so like say in um, Canadian society, there's often sort of like the just just keep the peace, just be nice. So it's actually deemed kind of morally superior to abandon what you want to say or do if it's going to offend someone else like it's better to fawn and so now it starts to become like even in situations where you're not under bodily threat this is the biggest thing most of us i have i to my knowledge never been under bodily threat and needed to fawn but i have been in many many situations where i was under social threat where it was either explicitly and tons of times implicitly signaled to me that if i didn't go along to get along i was going to be under threat of being kicked out of the social situation and we are so socially driven we are social creatures we are still designed uh, to rely on each other even at times where we literally don't have to but like and beyond that it is again just exploited in us of like you know we see the sort of people that are hung out to dry in the media and you know the stories we pass around of wow that person was so bad they 
we're such a troublemaker and such a disruptor or whatever. And like, don't be like that person. Like we get all these stories. So then that heightens our fawning response because honestly, for us human beings, social threat is, can feel very similar, if not equivalent to physical threat, truly. And so just understanding that that was what was going on really helped under it just helped explain to me what happened in that operating room and that it was automatic and that it and that's and that's why I felt like like some of the memory of it is clear and some of it I'm like I don't even know I feel like when I think of that memory I don't really feel myself as if I'm in it I I feel as if I was watching myself looking down and I think that's because it was true I was very dissociated from myself in my body I my body just took over and did this automatic response and um, I hope that even just thinking of it that way is helpful to you. If you can think of situations where you're like, what's wrong with me? Why didn't I just set a boundary with that person? And by the way, anytime you're asking the question, what's wrong with you, please, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Please reframe as saying, what has happened to me? That's the trauma-informed way to ask that question because the truth is there is nothing wrong with you. All of your parts are good. Every bit of you, is good. And so if you're feeling though confused about why you act a certain way, it is much more useful question to say, huh, what has happened to me in the past? What automatic responses rose up in me that caused actions that I'm now thinking, oh, I didn't really choose that consciously. Like what happened there? Typically it's about what happened to you in the past that's showing up in the present, right? That's what trauma responses are. So I wanted to show, just talk in a bit more detail about fawning and what it really is. And a lot of it, like I said, is from um, Luis Mojica's course. Um, I recommend looking up his stuff. It's like really good. So one thing that he really helped explain to me is that there's kind of two things happening at the same time when you're fawning. So the first thing that's happening is that a part of you, the part of you that definitely knows what you want. So say someone asks you to do something for them. And then say you were able to like freeze frame and like check in with your like inner knowing, your inner knowing is saying, no, I don't want to do that thing for whatever reason. I'm tired. That's not my favorite thing, like whatever. But you you like check in and and it is a no. So if you're fawning, what happens is that part of you gets silenced or suppressed, or you could even say frozen, like it just gets closed off. So you don't even really feel it. You don't feel the no. Instead, this other part of you, I think it's sort of this protective performer part of you, puts away whatever, like, so you've already put away whatever it is that you actually want to do. And instead is like gauging what you think the other person wants you to do, and then just reflexively answers with that. So um, have you noticed yourself doing this? Like someone's like, hey, do you mind doing this thing for me? And there's like a part of me that's gauging like, what do they want the answer to be? Sometimes it's obvious they want it to be a yes, but there's other times where it's more ambiguous. And so then I won't know how to answer because I'm really only wanting to give them the answer that they want from me. So, you know, someone's like, hey, what do you think about this political situation? And I'm kind of like, trying to gauge from their tone of voice. I'll be, I'll say something maybe non-committal, be like, oh yeah, like it's quite the situation, huh? What do you think? Or, you know, like I'm trying to draw out what I see 
that they are thinking so I can mirror it back. That's another term I hear, like mirroring back what other people use, putting a mask on, performing. Like these are all kind of terms that I've realized maybe aren't the root or all like this fawning response. And so those are kind of the two parts. So there's like whatever you truly think, believe, desire, and that gets frozen away, dissociated from. And then there's this other part of you that just automatically makes its best guess of like what the it thinks the other person will be pleased with and like spits that out of your mouth. So like, I don't know how many times you've had where someone's like, hey, could you do this for me? And you're like, they haven't even finished saying what you want, what they want from you. And you're like, yeah, 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 no problem, no problem, no problem. I like, I will sometimes, I do this with my husband and I'll be like, yeah, 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 no problem. And then I'll have to like ask him, again, what it is he wanted me to do, because I wasn't listening. It When I, I have a, I've realized a very strong fawning response. And so it actually means that I don't listen to what he's asking for. He'd be like, hey, do you want to go like murder someone really quick? I'm like, yeah, 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 no problem, no problem. Like he could say anything. And I would like, just say, yeah, no problem. Because it's the default response of like, whatever he wants to keep me safe, whatever he wants to keep me safe, you know? And um, I, I, uh, I have, um, my body, I'm reframing it already for myself, my body has this very ingrained tendency to fawn as a default response of mine. Um, so much so that I have like, there were thought, times where I thought this was my personality. I thought this was my identity. Like throughout my life, I've, I've been like, oh yeah, I'm kind of a peacekeeper. Like, I don't know if any of you know about the Enneagram. It's like this personality typing thing, but I was like, I'm an Enneagram nine, which is the peacekeeper. And I felt that very validating when I learned that. I'm like, ah, it's like kind of a good thing. Like, I'm just trying to keep the peace. I'm just trying to like hold all sides of the argument. And there's ways in which that's true, even in my inner self, actually. But like in terms of when I'm saying, yeah, no problem, whatever you think, whatever you want, what do you want for dinner? Like that whole thing where I'm just like not even checking with myself for a millisecond. I am just like putting up a mirror to each person say, I will be who you want me to be. I will be who you want me to be. Like that whole thing. I I thought that was my identity and just sort of my lot in life, you know, peacekeeper, people pleaser, you know, and it's like kind of this humble brag, like being, I'm such a perfectionist. Like we, we've actually turned these into like subtle, good qualities. Like it's kind of, you know, when you're in a job interview and they're like, what's your biggest challenge? Like you could be like, oh, I'm just like such a people pleaser. I just love like helping people so much. And I just would like rather like put everyone's needs before mine. Ha 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 ha. And like, now I'm like, uh oh, not like red flag, but I'd be like, oh, let's like tend to that part of you. It's not a good thing. It's someone that could be very exploited, right? By someone who's like, great, I'll just make you do whatever I want. You know, like it, it can be really... I wanted, I'm speaking it as if it's very fun, but also, I mean, a lot of really, really painful things happen to many people because um, their default reaction to things is to fawn and someone else's default exploitation of that. I mean, really painful things can happen. So I just want to tend to my voice here and just name that this is like painful stuff, right? Because like, I no longer want to think of it as a good personality trait that I'm going to over identify with and perpetuate in myself to fawn. I'm not going to think I'm a bad person and like a doormat and all that stuff either. I'm going to realize I have a power. I am a person. I'm a human being. I choose to believe I'm a good human being, irrespective of how I respond to situations. But even if you're just like want to be neutral about it, be like, I am a human being 
with a nervous system that is primed to fawn. Um, and really kind of decoupling our identities and our personality traits from this and recognizing um, it's not that I am a fawner, it's not that I'm a people pleaser, it's that my body is primed to fawn. That can help create space so that if there are situations where when you really look at it, you no longer want to default to, to, to fawning. Like in my relationship with my husband, I actually would prefer to really listen and consider if I want to do the thing he's asking me to do, both for myself and also for him. So um, that's a situation where it doesn't serve me to be like, oh, I'm just such a pleaser in our relationship, you know, because it comes at this big cost, right? Like. First of all, I've had to relearn in my adult life how to figure out what I want. I don't know if any of you remember the Julia Roberts movie, uh, The Runaway Bride. But at the time when I saw it in high school, I was like, what's wrong with this lady? Why doesn't she know how, to, how she likes eggs? It's like one of like, the, the themes of, of the movie. She's always like running away from different people before she marries them. And um, one of the things along with that is that she, she just always pretends to like eggs in the way that the, the man likes it. I should watch it now. I feel like it would be pretty profound, but also maybe problematic. Who knows? Um, and at the end of the movie, spoiler, she realizes she doesn't like eggs because she just was pretending to like whatever the man liked in, in all these different things where she almost married them. And like, I identify with that so strongly and I've had to really like check in and learn to like identify what I want, what my desires are. And like, I'm still in the process, like I'm in certain kinds of therapy where I would spend time like connecting with my body and just centering like, oh, I think I actually want this, you know, because it's so default to be like, well, what do they want? What's going to be dangerous? Which is the least dangerous answer? And I'll just give that one, you know, because that's, the thing that the cost is it's it is safer especially say there's a person who is going to threaten you or maybe even harm you in some way whether physically emotionally or socially if you don't do what they want if they are quite um well abusive would be the definition of that like they're like you better do what i want you know it is safer not easier like in some getting the easy way out but it's safer to be like okay i will do what you want i will do what you want right like Naming that this is a powerful thing that often we have to do because society includes a lot of like harmful people. And it comes at the cost though of like disconnecting with ourselves and our own desires and our and our internal relationship with ourselves. It it violates our boundaries, you know, it's this sort of internal violation of a boundary when we don't say no if we mean no or yes when we mean yes, right? So um when I think back of where it came from, you know, uh, just to share a bit for me in case it's useful for you, like, like we've said before, fawning is a natural response. I also like look at the, the uh, behaviors exhibited by members of my family. And I think I, this may be perhaps a more predominant uh, default strategy for many people in my family, but honestly, more the women's so then you wonder if it's more socialized than biological and who cares, right? So anyway, I think it's been passed down to me, honestly. Um, and uh, it certainly was very amplified for me as the one to go to through my childhood. And um, it, starting from like, um, I was raised in a very uh, like evangelical fundamentalist form of Christianity. And so I grew up in a framework that included explicit language about like, beware your internal desires, beware 
you what your body is telling you you want that could be the devil that could be sinful that could right and so um if i followed what i wanted especially if i was receiving signals from people in authority whether it was parental figures or you know church figures or whatever saying you should not want this i was under threat from a young age of not only feeling the rejection and disappointment of my my attachment sources my parents right um but also like the community that we were in like you had to be christian if you were non-christian you were out socially and then beyond that like getting the rejection of the ultimate source of love and belonging himself god like it was like layers of do not listen to your internal desires definitely double check at all times what other people whether it's god or the pastor or your parents want and make sure that what you are thinking you want matches them and so um i know because i grew up with siblings they had different defaults to this but so there it's not like this environment in itself always creates the fawning response as like the one you go to but certainly in this environment of kind of deep conditions of belonging my default was to go in the pathway of tell me what you want me to think and believe and I will do it so I can be safe, right? And further along, like there's beyond Christianity though, like in this particular form, I mean, I was praised for getting the good marks so I'd get better marks. Like I was the good girl in so many ways. I um capital G's all around, you know, and that was something that was deeply rewarded throughout my years like um an early teacher experience sort of shaming me for coloring a little outside the lines um was like okay make sure you're only doing what your teacher wants you to do and that's how you get good grades and by the way that's like kind of how school's set up which is messed up but anyway then i get to medical school and i've already realized that this is this is my strong suit is like gauging and saying what i think you want me to say to you and honestly at this point pretty much believing it like eh, that's probably what I want anyway because I'm so dissociated from what I could want and then I definitely realize in the medical school system woof like there are you know the mostly male authoritative figures the preceptors and supervisors they are in charge of my belonging and success so I actually learn that I don't need to know all the facts I don't need to learn how to deep like think deeply i definitely don't have to learn how to connect with patients because apparently no one's that interested in me doing that i need to just understand which set of facts they're likely to quiz me on what sort of helpful tasks will will show that i'm a good helper to them like i you know carry a bunch of pens with me because i'm very aware that just being as helpful as having a pen appears to put me in higher favor with my preceptors than if i am kind to patients Okay, like, and if anyone else, I don't think I'm alone with this. It's like, make sure you're making them happy. That's what medical school was for me, honestly. Like, I've had to spend some time grieving the lost opportunity to actually understand the human body and the science at a deeper level that I could have had in medical school if I wasn't spending so much time, energy, brain space trying to please my preceptors and i see it all the time and i'm really doing my best to disrupt it in learners that i work with it's hard though because you see how ingrained it is and how even with like people who are very non-abusive and well-meaning there we have it baked deeply baked into our medical training culture and our medical culture in general in ways that um i just have to grieve regularly and then try and shift yeah and so 
those are my origin stories, if you will. That, that's where I can hold myself with such deep compassion when maybe I say a default yes to a patient when, when I think about it, I wish I'd said no. And so now I have an opportunity though, like I am fully formed. This is my 10th year of practice and I have done the work on myself to be able to practice offering myself safety to try and not fawn. <laughs> and that's like the level I feel like I'm at is like practice not fawning some of the time. It is so default. I don't even know I'm doing it still lots of the times. And so I just want to spend this last bit of the podcast talking about the specifics of how how could we, what, the way I framed it is how can we learn to turn down the volume on our compulsion to fawn? Compulsions, maybe just this default re reflex. If right now the reflex is sort of over amplified because of our past experiences, how can we turn the volume down? How can we create space for ourselves to give ourselves the opportunity for our conscious thinking and conscious deeper desires to rise up instead, right? Um, and it, that it's a slow practice that will feel very uncomfortable and like scary at first because your your body is used to using it as a way to keep you safe. So if you suddenly take it away, it's like taking off a piece of armor, your body's going to feel vulnerable and be like, are you sure? I don't think we can. I think we have to just make sure we're still telling people what they want to hear. I think that's better, right? And so we have to be very loving and, and gradual and kind to this nervous system response in order for it to kind of um, de-amplify, you know, unwire the nervous, the neurons together as, as intensely and, and, and learn over time than when it's not necessary, which is typically most of the time, unless we're regularly under bodily threat, you know, which um, think, I am grateful that's not true for me. So, um, so the concrete things um, well, then one concrete thing is, especially if you're like, wow, I know I do this a lot. Actually, Joan, this whole podcast has been pretty activating for me. I just want to hear that and, and feel you. If you've had to pause it, that's okay. Take the time you need. I'm going to put a trigger warning at the top of this podcast for sure. Um, maybe this is work that should be done for you with a trauma therapist or at least with another trusted person, whether it's a coach or a therapist or someone. Yeah, like this is like uh, safety stuff. This is stuff that our our body does to help us feel safe. So as we try and unlearn it, there will include the, the experience of it feeling unsafe. Yeah. And having a lot of activation. And, and, and when I say activation, I mean, physically, like my body feels like it's full of bees or really sweaty or feeling overwhelmed. Like, like a lot of bodily sensations are likely to arise as we like work through this, you know. So um, just putting all that frame around it. So kind of the key things that I have been practicing that help me to fawn less. Um, so the first is unshaming fawning, which I hope I've been doing throughout this particular episode. The second is um, resourcing my body and giving it space and time to be resourced in a way where I can then um, t say my truth and then kind of tending to myself after. I'd say those are kind of the three chunks. So the first one, I mean, from the jump. So we're not learning to un to unfawn. We're not unlearning fawning as a default response because we're bad or weak or whatever. Like we have to first really come to a deep understanding that we have fawned because our nervous systems are powerful and we are powerful human bodies. And this is one honestly pretty genius way like it's such a creative and genius way to get through so many situations. And when we have all been navigating the gauntlet of like 
all of the conditions of belonging and inhuman stories that have been thrown at us through our lives and then and then in healthcare for sure this has been a really genius way to get through some real sticky situations so like getting to a point of acknowledging if in, in you know if you can get to a point of even having gratitude for past self gratitude for nervous system thank you so much like that's very powerful if you're not quite there at least saying in neutral terms like all that's happening when I say yes, when I mean no, is a nervous system response. It's not about whether I'm getting into heaven. It's not about, you know, weak-willed or any of these horrible judgmental terms. It's also not um, something like that's like, uh, you know, um, good either though. Like it's just neutral. It's just neutral. Let's like put it that way. Yeah. Um, can we honor it and witness it and say, there it is. There it goes again. Oh, it happened again. Makes sense. I understand it. Thank you for protecting me, nervous system. And I am now at a place where I think I can, I can hold on to safety. I can protect myself in other ways. I can take the risk of being honest and authentic and not die if the other person has some disappointment at me. Yeah. And so then that's like the second bit of the strategy is like the only way that your your reflex would turn down is by putting yourself in situations where you speak your truth and then notice that you don't die. Like that is kind of the only way it's like practically speaking, you know, the person you always say yes to starting to practice saying no to them when you don't mean it. And this is very tricky. This can take time. This will mean lots of times you still say yes when you mean no, but you can work on it over time and practice decoupling because that's what's going to show you. That's how your body learns is through experience. So we do have to actually create experiences of being authentic, saying our truth and showing our body. Yes, that was very intense. And whoa, that person had some feelings about it and whatever. And I kept myself physically safe. I am still connected to other people. Maybe not this particular person at this moment, but other people, right? I am still okay. So we don't need to go to the fawning in the future. It wasn't such a horrible, threatening experience to be truthful about what we want. Um, Some practical things around that is practicing pausing before you respond. So practicing listening. So saying, could you repeat the question again? I'm sorry, I was distracted. Can you repeat your request again? That's a great way of buying yourself time and actually then doing the deeper listening and checking in with yourself. If that's not enough time, you can say, you know what? Um, I've got a lot on my mind right now. I'm making a note of your requests. Can you, can we circle back to a later date? Or can you send this to me an email? Like my brain is flooded right now. Like whatever, like asking for time. You don't, even just delaying when you say yes, even if you eventually say yes and you're like, dang, I wish I'd said no. But like it, that helps it not be a reflex anymore. That allows time for your conscious brain to get on board, right? So buying time super useful. A patient asks you a bunch of things and you're like, tell me more of the story. And so I can understand your request more. First of all, super helpful, very validating for them. And then gives you time. So you don't have to be like, yeah, you know, no problem too quickly before you even know what you've committed to. Tell me more about it. Like giving space, buying time, so helpful. The other thing is sort of in your body. This is something that I had already been doing, but Luis from that course said in a way that was really helpful and and explicit to me is, So when we are um, being um, invited by our body to fawn, 
there's a part of us that's really activated like it's it's very constricted it's very it's sort of that frozen part right and 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 it's feeling a lot of intense feelings and that's important to practice noticing so even like thinking back on a past situation saying oh yeah it's for me it's often in my kind of my gut and chest area just feeling really like tight and noticing that there are other parts of our body that aren't very activated like i'd use this in lots of different situations i've like if you're just feeling really really intense emotions from head to toe try checking in with your pinky toe and or try checking in with your earlobes because typically at least one of those two areas of your body is feeling kind of just neutral they're not that tingly they're not that sweaty they're not that activated like the rest of you is And even just noticing that there's a part of you that is okay, is feeling totally fine, is unbothered by the situation, really helps you ground and realize, okay, there's parts of me that are unbothered. There's parts of me that are feeling fine. Look, I am actually generally fine. Like it's a good grounding strategy. And for using it to help build your capacity to try and say no when you're used to saying yes, um, what Luis uh, describes it as is like, focusing on the part of yourself that feels really like hot and activated and then focusing on the part of yourself that feels fine, like your earlobes and then, and then weaving them back and forth. I think he uses the language of weaving. So then you focus on your activated part, you focused on your calm and resource part, activated part, resource part, back and forth, back and forth. And I practice this and I realize, like for me, what can happen is all of me then starts to feel more integrated. You know, like it it starts to feel like all one thing. Like the parts of me that are more resourced may feel a little more tingly. And the part of me that felt really scared and activated and tight feels a little less. And I feel like this one whole person who is more capable of just like going ahead and saying no, and even holding a bit of space for the other person if they're feeling disappointed about it. So that's like a practical kind of body embodiment exercise you can do with yourself. And then the final thing, just always circling back is, yeah, like just offering myself only love and compassion for times when I still default to fawning and looking, including looking back at those previous, like looking back at that accidental terp uh, experience that I had and just like loving on myself in that situation so much. Like it's a component of the re-preceptoring ex- episode, uh, the re-preceptoring exercise, I should say, that I that I talked about a couple episodes ago. Like I understand on a more deep level what, you know, med, med student Joan was going through in that situation. I understand why she didn't think it was possible to say no even though she wanted to say no. A lot of that entire rotation I wanted to say no to. And then I would have judgment of like, what's wrong with me? Am I so spoiled? Am I so selfish? La, 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 la. Like everyone else is fine with it. And listen, maybe I would have like honored my no and still done it anyway in a conscious way. But because I like shamed myself and like froze myself so much, I wasn't even in touch with what I really wanted and what would have really served me. Like I ask sometimes my learners now like, what would it be like to prioritize your own learning? And a lot of times they'd look at me like I am a banana, like literally a banana or bananas. (laughs) But like, it's so foreign, which is really makes me so sad. Like, what would it be like to prioritize how and what you want to learn? You know? And so I think back on how that was certainly not my main question I was asking myself at the time of 
you know, that encounter with that preceptor and that prostate and that catheter. And I totally understand. I understand what I did and why I did it. And I can offer myself like love and compassion from now. I can like um, really hold a lot of deep disappointment in that preceptor in particular and honestly sort of the whole system for how it's not designed to support learner brains. And um, then I can, you know, in healing that now, I can take baby steps to to change that through this podcast, through my work with learners still. And just knowing on a deep level how far we have to go to make education and learning trauma-informed, which it isn't, you know? So that's what I want to share with you all about people-pleasing. Like, I think I'm still going to use the term people-pleaser because a lot of people identify with it. It's kind of the way I'm, like, I'll still use the term perfectionism. I'll still use the the term imposter syndrome because so many people identify with it. But I've realized, like, kind of all of these terms are putting something in a box when underneath is, like, various amounts of, like, I don't know, trauma responses, really. And um, it's not a you problem. Just like imposter syndrome is not a you problem. Perfectionism is not a you problem. People-pleasing and fawning aren't a you problem. They're a society problem, an environment problem. People exploiting you and praising you for betraying your deepest desires to serve their desires. And it's really fucked up. I'll say a swear because it is. And I feel a lot of anger about it as well, the how often it's exploited. And I, I want to be more intentional myself on being mindful to do that as little as possible. And uh, yeah, so that's what I wanted to talk about today. I, um, I want you to know if you have identified and resonated with fawning as a default response for you, that you are not broken. There isn't anything wrong with you. And the fact that you are pleasant and helpful in all situations isn't your best quality. It's not your worst quality either, but it's not the best you have to offer the world. The best you have to offer the world is underneath that. It's It'll include a lot of helping people, frankly. It'll include a lot of generosity, but it will be genuine and real once you, and just start to unlearn the need to fawn. It's not a perfectionistic thing. It's not like, I never fawn anymore. Like I say, I'm like doing it all the time. But like just having even 1% more awareness and like 1% more telling your truth every day, every week makes this huge, huge difference in really restoring you back to yourself in coming home to who you really are as this incredible, deeply brilliant, resourceful, rich human being that is uniquely you. And that unique shape and treasure trove inside of you, those are your best qualities, not telling everybody what they want to hear. And it's fine to keep telling a bunch of people what they want to hear if you're not ready to do the painful work of like reclaiming your own safety in those situations. That is totally fine. And if there's a situation that is really, you just need to start saying your truth, I am here cheering you on because I think it is so powerful to do it. And you'll notice that you don't die and you'll notice that it's okay, even though it'll feel real uncomfortable. And sometimes people will be really spicy with you. 
So I also, I just really encourage you don't do it completely alone. Like whether you find someone else who, you you know, maybe you listen to this podcast and you both want to talk about it. Or if you want to reach out to me on Instagram and I'll cheer you on, you know, whatever way you want to do it, including if you want me to be your coach through it. I am here for that. I'm here for you. And I'm in the trenches with you too, figuring out how to be an authentic human when we have been exploited for these natural default human responses and how do we reclaim ourselves from that and just sending you a lot of love i just feel a lot of love in my heart today about anyone who's listening and for my past self present self and future self because woof this thing's a little tricky isn't it but we can do it that's what i know for sure all right have a great week and i'll see you next week Hey there, healthcare humans. I want to invite you to sign up for my course, How to Stop Worrying About Your Patients. It's a free five-day email course delivered right to your inbox where I teach you why worrying is optional, that it's not actually helpful for your patients, and that it's possible to reclaim your brain from worry and start enjoying your life in and outside of medicine. Go to joanchanmd.com course to sign up now. I'll see you in your inbox.